Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Welcome back to the Autism Helper Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about learning through play. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I think you are going to learn a lot. So today, I'm sharing my interview with Ariana Botain, who is the Vice President of Clinical Services at KGH Autism. Ariana is a BCBA and is really passionate about naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions, NDBI. Now, if that's a new acronym for you, for the acronym soup that we all live in. She is going to explain everything about naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions, how you can use these in your practice, why this is important. And she gives some great actionable tips that I think you could utilize as a clinician, as a parent, as a teacher right away on how to really implement these strategies with fidelity in a way that is fun, in a way that is engaging. So I'm going to jump right to the interview so Ariana can share all about NDBI. Hi, Ariana. Thank you so much for joining me. Hello, Sasha. It's so great to be here. I'm excited about our topic today for our interview. So today we're talking about naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions. That's a mouthful, right? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So 
in a nutshell, what what are naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions? Sure. So it is definitely a mouthful to say, but I think it really does describe what it is. But big 50-foot explanation is NDBI is an empirically supported approach to treating young children with autism that involves learning through play. And it really represents the merge of ABA and developmental science. And I think that's great because, you know, sometimes ABA gets this negative connotation of being at the table and like drill and kill and really robotic, but that's not necessarily what ABA has to be, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely, you know, we, we call kind of that old school ABA, right? Yeah. Like the flashcards, the table. And I think so many of us in the field were so excited about the shift that's happening and just really more of a focus on naturalistic play-based ABA. So talk to me a little bit about what you mean when you say developmental science and how kind of the merge of that with ABA is important. Yeah. So, you know, the field of ABA, and even going through graduate school in ABA, we didn't learn a lot about typical child development or developmental science. And there's really been a lot of great research within the area of developmental science on these early developmental learning processes that are involved in communication and language and social learning, which is what a lot of the times we're addressing in ABA, especially in the treatment of children with autism. Um, So for example, developmental research has taught us that there are certain skills that are really precursors to language development that are really important for us to focus on, such as joint attention and imitation and social engagement. And developmental research has also shown the importance of allowing the child to be an active rather than a passive participant in learning. And that, once again, is kind of more of that old school ABA, right? It was very teacher-led, teacher-directed, where we were, you know, writing out our teaching targets, doing them in the order that we wanted, and the child was kind of just along for the ride, right? But I Mm -hmm. think what the research shows us is that giving the child more of an active role um, is really going to be more beneficial, and you're going to get better outcomes with that child. So yeah, what are some of the benefits of using this NDBI approach with, with learners? Yeah, so Really, when I talk about the importance of using NDBI for children with autism, I think it's also important to talk about how the field of autism has really changed within the past five or so years, just with younger and younger children being diagnosed. Yeah. So there's some really cool research by Karen Pearson colleagues that suggests that an autism diagnosis really becomes stable starting at 14 months. It's actually able to be detected at 12 months, but that diagnosis becomes considerably more stable and reliable at 14 months. And because of this, you know, early autism treatment, I believe, really needs to focus on using both the science of learning as well as research on these appropriate developmental learning stages and the best way to teach really young children. That's such a good point, too, because when you think of, you know, early intervention and an 18 month old, we, sh- we shouldn't be having an 18 month old sit at a table. I mean, we shouldn't be having many of yes. our elementary learners sit at a table for long periods of time, but it feels even more unnatural with our little ones that we have to work on these goals in a different way. That's going to be engaging and then age appropriate too. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So what does NDBI consist of and what kind of frameworks might listeners be familiar with under this umbrella? So yeah, there's definitely several treatment models that fall under that NDBI umbrella that many people may have heard of. So these include project impact, incidental teaching, milieu teaching, net teaching, and the Early Start Denver model or ESDM. I love the Early Start Denver model when I first learned about it. And I think when you're talking about like the developmental science and ABA, I was like, oh my God, this is what has been missing. Like that, you know, that piece of like those sequences and what you need to teach in what order and how to really take data in a play-based model. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the light bulb moment. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And what's really cool is within the last five to eight years, people in kind of all of these different camps that were doing very similar things came together and identified these common elements and agreed upon this general NDBI framework. And that's where NDBI came about. That's awesome. So for you in practice as a clinician and with, you know, your RBTs and in your practice, what does this look like? Can you kind of paint the picture of what an NDBI session looks like or what that like treatment program looks like overall? Sure. Yeah. So the first The first step, um, as with all therapeutic interventions, is really a comprehensive assessment, right, to identify what goals we need to work on within this global therapy program. And so when we were looking at our, you know, best practice behavioral assessments like the VVMAP, we were finding that, you know, looking at those developmental milestones and skills, some of them just weren't present or fully explored in some of our, you know, traditional behavioral assessments. So we actually pulled items from uh, several different sources to create an NDBI milestones assessment. So really the goal is that we use our NDBI assessment in conjunction with our VBMAP assessment, just to make sure that we're identifying all of those really important early learning skills that we know are so crucial um, to our therapy program going down the road. That's so great. I'm I'm happy you brought that up because I think so many great clinicians and great teachers too, you know, we kind of have to learn to like sample a little bit. Like we, we like this assessment, but we need something more. And we, and that's kind of a good practice to get in is to always be like building upon the tools we have. And I think it's okay to have that like multi-tiered approach when we're looking at something like an assessment or creating like our, our goals and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, it's been really great for our clinicians too, and just being able to train them on some more of those developmental milestones or things that, you know, we didn't get training on in graduate school. And I think they're feeling like the treatment plans and the progress we're making with our clients has been so much more impactful knowing, you know, previously we'd have some kiddos doing our VB map where we'd get these, you know, splinter skills and there'd be these holes and we would be scratching our heads. Like, why is this happening? Or why, you know, when they come in, do they have these weird splinter cells? Um, and I think what we're finding is now that we're using our NDBI assessment with the VB map, there's far few of those just because a lot of those skills, if you unpack them related back to joint attention, um, and imitation and some of those other skills that just weren't fully broken down in the VBMAP assessment. Yeah, that's a really good point. Cause yeah, we often do get those like holes and you're like, oh, well, where do I start now? What do I do next? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then based off of that, of course, we'll create, you know, our treatment plan for clients. 
and we'll start sessions. And I will say we have very few tables in our clinic. <laughs> we did an <laughs> overhaul um, and we really tried to create learning spaces where we have a variety of different theme rooms in our clinic just to help decrease that response effort for people to engage in play. Um, because when we first kind of switched to this model, we found that some of our therapists really struggled, especially those that came from more of that traditional DTT training, um, because they, you know, were used to going to the table and doing work where it's like, no, like you're going to play and then kind of find those opportunities to intersperse, um, your teaching targets really. Oh my gosh. And talk to me about your theme rooms. Sorry to interrupt you, but that's yeah. Yeah. So it, it was really cool. We actually had all of our staff come together and brainstorm just ideas of themes. And what we came up with is we have, for example, we have a construction room where there's all these types of, you know, manipulatives to build. Like there's Legos, there's um, like uh, Duplos, like anything that you can build things. Like there's like construction vehicles and kind of like a construction site. Um, where they can engage with that. And then we have a, um, it's like a more of a pretend play room where we have um, like a baby doll house and, um, and a functional play with a restaurant where we have a restaurant set up. And then, um, and then we have a art room where the whole theme is like art and creativity. Um, so we have paper and pencil and every type of, you know, art, um, supply imaginable. Oh my gosh. Um, so I love it was, that. Yeah. It, it was really cool. It was a cool project just with, um, the staff being able to bring their ideas of things. Um, and another really cool learn room that we have is an early learning room where it's just very, like a lot of like sensory motor activities. So, um, like soft things to kind of crawl on and, and squish and manipulate, um, so we tried to also incorporate the different stages of play too, and kind of have a room for each of those stages of play, depending on what stage, you know, the clients were in. Yeah. And so have you found when moving to like this model and then obviously, you know, training staff and all of that was part of it, but that kind of having all these opportunities and toys and manipulatives have helped your staff, like create those opportunities easier? Yes, definitely. I think it was... It wasn't until we kind of took away, you know, the individual treatment rooms as like the go-to. Of course, there's some kids that do need that, right? Mm -hmm. um, with less distractions and more structure and things like that. But in general, all of our early learners, we do train our staff to use this model. And until we really had those rooms set up where they could kind of go in and just kind of, you know, play and just have fun, um, it became a lot easier for them to identify those opportunities within play to, oh, I can run a tacting trial here, or, you know, I can do a manding trial within here. But it was like, we had to almost teach them to play first in these different spaces, and then kind of identify those opportunities to sneak in a trial, like I, I like to say. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to say it. So yeah, in these sessions in, in your rooms, what kind of strategies, and I mean, this is a big question, but overview, what yeah. kind of strategies are, are used in those sessions and, and kind of maybe give an example of maybe what a session would look like in one of those rooms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the biggest hallmark of NDBI is that it is child led. So 
every session is going to begin with, you know, the therapist assessing motivation and kind of following the child's lead to see what activities they're interested in, in doing that day or in that moment, right? So we have them engage in that activity, do so with enthusiasm and excitement. Um, and then within that too, we are still using ABA. We're still using, you know, our three-term contingency and we're trying to arrange the environment to help motivate our clients to use their language. So we use a lot of communication temptation. Some of the listeners might be familiar, right? So mm -hmm. um, just really setting up the environment to promote the child using language, particularly man's, right? So we may have numerous items out in the treatment area that are maybe up on a shelf or in a container that the child needs to, you know, interact with the adult to ask for help accessing. Um, and then we also, you know, even though it is child-led, we're also doing what we called shared control. Um, and we're teaching turn-taking uh, within our NDBI program. So even though we're following the child's lead, we're also making sure that it's not completely child-led, right? Because that's more of the floor time, the other extreme in that direction, right? So we're still kind of, you know, keeping the reinforcers somewhat within our control. Um, but we're also doing this back and forth, right? So if we're playing a game like Candyland, right? We're teaching your turn versus my turn. Or if we're playing with toys, like with a car set, maybe the child gets to drive the garbage truck to the dump and then the adult does. So we're still having that shared control within the teaching sessions. And it's such a natural way to work on that when you're already playing because that's typically how kids play together or parents play with their kids or, you know, that's that's part of play is taking turns when you're with other people or other children. Absolutely. And that's really the primary reason that we do that is to just help support that social reciprocity, right? Like you yeah. said, because when you're with your peers, if you're just doing everything and you think they're going to follow your lead the whole time, that ain't going to happen. So <laughs> we want to set them up for success with their peers as well. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And this whole strategy and approach is really going to embed reinforcement along the way because there is that, you know, child focus. It's either playing things that they want to play with. If they're not interested in the garbage truck, we're not going to play with the garbage truck. You know, it's going to be embedded into the activity. Absolutely. And that's one of the other, I, I think, big difference between kind of that traditional DTT approach is that you're using that natural reinforcement, right? It's not like, okay, let's work at the table and then you get this candy or you get this toy. Um, you're embedding it within what you're doing. So if you're teaching cutting, for example, instead of learning to cut strips of paper, the client might be learning to cut actual pieces of pizza and then get to eat them. Um, so you're incorporating it into everything you're doing and just making learning fun for them so that they want to continue learning and learning from you as the teacher. And it's like more reinforcing for everyone too. Like the adult wants to be there. The kid wants to be there. That's like the perfect situation, right? 
Absolutely. And that's, you know, it's funny you say that because that's something that I tell staff that struggle sometimes with this approach is, you know, the first thing I say is I'm like, I'm going to be honest. It doesn't look like you're having fun. Is yeah. that accurate? And they, they're like, yeah, I'm like, I tell you what, if you're not having fun, the client is definitely not having fun. So find something that you enjoy, you know, maybe that crossover between something that you like and they like and really have fun with it. And I guarantee you they will follow as That's well. That's a great, just like foundational thing to have in the back yes. of your head. Like if you're not having fun, they're not having fun most likely. So. Yeah, absolutely. So other big kind of overarching strategies that are important when you are teaching new team members about this or you yourself are implementing these sessions? What are others? What are some other important strategies to incorporate? Yeah, absolutely. And these really two are strategies that we, you know, we train our staff to use and then also our parents too, because, you know, it's my firm belief that as a parent, you are a teacher, whether you like it or not, right? And you can teach just as much, if not more, than your therapist and your child's teachers at school. So, you know, some of the things that we really train on and practice a lot is, you know, imitating what your child is doing during play. Um, so copying their gestures, their facial expressions, their body movements, vocalizations. Um, so if, for example, a child is rolling a car down a ramp, you could find another car and roll it down right afterwards. And this really helps them understand that you're interested in what they're doing, for one, and that it also helps increase their language skills and, and, and their vocalizations if it's, you know, a verbal utterance that you're imitating and the length of time that they're going to engage with you during play. And I already mentioned it, but kind of along with that, too, is using animation um, just to get the child's attention, and keep them engaged. So, you know, using those dramatic vocalizations and body movements, um, talking really quietly, talking very loud. Um, and that will also help the child want to keep playing with you and also help them start to understand the meaning of different gestures and facial expressions. And again, and a really natural way to work on it because you're, you're, you know, you're, if you're playing doctor, that's part of being a doctor is being like, ow, my shot hurt or something. That's, it's all like a natural way. Not like let's have emotion flashcards and practice making a hurt face. It's, yes. it's embedded into the activity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then the other components too is um, modeling communication. So not only are you kind of copying or modeling what the child is doing, but you also want to, you know, model new ways to play um, or model language for the child. So like if, for example, the child is bouncing a ball, you could comment on that, say you're bouncing a ball. And when you're doing that, you want to use simple language that's just above what the child is able to do on their own. Can you explain that? Because that is such yeah. a good, good strategy that I think people forget about so often. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's really kind of the modeling and expanding piece. So, you know, if the child knows how to say ball, or even if they say ball, you could say, yeah, you're bouncing the ball. Um, so that's how you kind of expand on it. But then also you want to take some time just to not use, you know, if the child is just starting to use one word utterances, you don't want, if they say ball, you say, yeah, you're bouncing the red ball down the street. <laughs> like That's just too much. They're going to tune out. It's not, you know, it's, it's not going to be impactful for them. You might want to just add one more word. So if they're saying ball, you say bounce ball, where you're just adding 
one other piece to that, not five other words in that sentence where you're going to lose them. Yeah. Cause sometimes it's tempting. Like I'm a talker. So I just like fill empty, you know, empty space with talking. And then it's like, Oh wait, what am I, you know, I always have to remind myself to pull back because I'll just talk and talk and explain. And it's important to remember. And, and for teachers really talking to parents about this, cause it's all new too receptive language processing and really identifying what's going to overwhelm a child. Absolutely. And and I, you know, I see that and you can almost see it on the child's face after you work with children for a while, you just see them tuning out, you know? And so now not only is like all of what you're modeling, not, you know, going to embed itself into the child, but they're also just going to start tuning you out in general. So it's just really important to keep the language, you know, at their level and just maybe a step above. Yeah, that's a great. And again, that assessment piece is so important because you want to know what their level is to know what that next step is. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Any other important aspects that you think are really critical to implementing NDBI appropriately? Yeah. Um, So like I said, the modeling is really huge. um, But I would say the other piece too, that's a really interesting component of NDBI programming, especially with you know, now the focus on in schools being like a social emotional approach to learning um, is NDBI works to modulate arousal and affect um, of the child just to kind of keep them in that optimal learning zone. Um, and what what I mean by that is, you know, if, for example, you have a child that comes in, uh, maybe, you know, it's a case of the Mondays <laughs> and they're a little bit tired, lethargic, kind of under aroused. The therapist or the teacher may want to start by engaging them in a little more active activity, right? Like if they like music, maybe putting on some music, trying to have a dance party, maybe also try to use a slightly elevated or excited tone of voice, right? To get them, maybe they're at kind of that one or two out of 10 into like that five out of 10, right? So they're, you know, they're awake, they're alert, um, they have some energy. And then on the opposite end, if a child comes in really kind of that overactive, hyper, very high energy, um, loud tone of voice, but like in a 10, right? A 10 out of 10, the therapist may try to direct them to maybe a calmer activity, right? Like let's go to Um, we also have one of our theme rooms is like a library room where we have like books and kind of more chill activities. So maybe try to direct them to more of a calmer activity and then also using like lower affect, like a calm, more quiet tone of voice, speaking a little bit slower to kind of, if you're kind of at a one or a two, you're trying to get them from that 10 down to more of that five. Oh, that's a really great point. And, you know, I, I noticed this actually anecdotally with my own kids. I'm like losing my voice a little bit right now, but I sometimes, if I am doing too many workshops, I lose my voice. So I have to talk really quiet to my kids and slower. And then I noticed that like, they're all quieter too, because they're modeling what yes. I'm doing. I'm like, I need to do this all the time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's really effective. Um, like I said, this was one of those like aha moments when I really first started diving into NDBI and learning about it that I was like, oh, wow, that's really awesome. Because, you know, how many times do we have, you know, therapists or teachers that come to us really struggling? Like he's so hyper, he's bouncing off the walls or like, they're so tired. They just want to sleep. You know what I mean? Where, um, this can be a really great strategy to help kind of, you know, meet them in the middle, 
get them, yeah. get them up a little bit or down a little bit, whatever they need. Yeah. Really great point. So you've talked a little bit about staff training kind of throughout everything we've been talking about and like shifting, you know, mindsets and things like that. Did you find that teams and, and new staff members were, and old staff members too, were open to this shift and how has kind of overall that gone? Yeah. Um, so it was interesting. We, we made this shift about a year ago and the approach that we took was, you know, I started with the BCBAs because I wanted to make sure that they really felt comfortable, um, you know, leading their teams because how we're set up here at KGH is each BCBA has a team of like six RBTs under them. So I really wanted to make sure that they felt comfortable, not only with our assessment, but also the approach and the strategies to use within within session. So, um, so we trained them first and then we trained the BTs and I, you know, helped support the BCBAs just, you know, ongoing with continuing to model, show different ways um, to use these strategies. And, you know, some people, I think based on their histories, just took it on a little bit easier. Um, and, and some people struggled a little bit more with it. And, you know, over the course of the last year and kind of helping to support, I feel like the best strategy and way to support staff in this is just model, model, model. Mm-hmm. I think the more examples that you have, the easier it is. Cause you can't just, you know, like I was saying, you kind of have to find your own groove yeah. and your own way of playing and having fun. But I think just the more examples, multiple exemplar training, right. Just showing them multiple ways to do it has really been the most effective and then kind of giving them that feedback in the moment. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, you kind of, and you said earlier too, you know, that we kind of first had to teach how to play. And, and as you've been talking, I've been thinking, especially about like preschool, early childhood teachers that are in those self-contained classrooms that maybe have paraprofessionals. And you may think like, okay, you know, you take these two kids and play for this center thinking, you know, oh, they they know how to play, but this is a little different. You know, it's not just because it's not free play where you're just watching. It's, it's, there's engagement and there's a purpose to it. Yes. Yes. That is the other thing too, that sometimes it does swing right in the opposite direction where, you know, you do see the therapist in these cool rooms kind of sitting back and letting the child engage in these things where it's like, jump in there with them. Like, even if, you know, they don't want to play maybe directly with you right away, like parallel play, play next to them, you know, try to um, have things kind of in your area that they're going to want and they can, you know, you can set up those manding opportunities and, um, and really promote that engagement because that's just such a critical part of NDVI. Yeah. And I think, like you said, that modeling piece is, because is it's huge because you're going to get to see the results, like the, the wins and the successes. And once you see that, you know, you start to, you, your behavior is reinforced and you start to get that buy-in piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think too, like just we've seen a lot less of kind of that low grade problematic behavior during session as well of just kind of that non-compliance, you know, that protesting going back to the table, you know, it's just because it's kind of the child is just, it should feel like play to them, right? Yeah. It shouldn't feel like, Oh, here I am at the table at school doing learning. Like I'm playing, I'm doing fun things and I'm learning throughout that play activity or natural routine. We do a lot of this, you know, embedded teaching during mealtime at the clinic, right? Or transitions too. Yeah, that's great. 
Um, awesome. This has been so helpful. And I think hopefully we'll really kind of spark some ideas as everyone was listening to what advice do you have for where people can go to learn more about NDBI? Absolutely. Um, so on our website, kgeachautismservices.com, we have a whole section under our approach on NDBI, what NDBI looks like at KGH with a whole bunch of links. So I would definitely direct people there. Okay. I will link that in the show notes. Well, thank you so much, Ariana. I've really appreciated all your advice. I think it's really actionable for, you know, clinicians that are working, you know, in in-home or in a therapy center, but also for teachers. I think this could be so applicable to a classroom setting as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum. Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.